what do you know about the news? Or maybe, what's your observation about the news? There's a lot of information flying around in our 24-hour news cycle. I wonder what you think about it. And I wondered what Peter Nowak thought about it, my next guest, who's the CEO and founder of The Donut, a news organization that's providing the news that you need, but also providing a positive spin. Peter and I had a wonderful conversation. He's curious. He's delightful. It's easy to talk to. You could definitely spend a long afternoon talking about a variety of things with Peter. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Peter Nowak. Hey, Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Very glad to have you on today, the podcast. And uh, how's life, man? Darian, my man. Well, it's uh, fair to say, I think, a lot has changed since the last time we uh, we talked. Um, True. Now we're in the midst of uh, midst of quarantine, but it's allowed me to get into Tiger King. So you know things aren't all bad. <laughs> I watched all of Tiger King in like two days when I saw it, and I was like, "This is crazy, man!" Oh my gosh! You know the one thing that I noticed that I haven't really heard a lot of people talking about. There's a guy right who owns uh, 187 massive exotic cats who ran for governor of Oklahoma made campaign videos where he was, am I allowed to, to curse on here? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's making campaign videos talking about being a, a gay gun-toning redneck who's broke as shit, who's got some <laughs> bitch in Florida uh, trying to take his tigers away. And that guy garnered 20% of the gubernatorial vote. <laughs> I don't think a lot of that's people crazy. talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, but hey, I guess it's honest. Yeah, it was funny. It's kind of an interesting transition. So I was recording another podcast with a lady from the UK, and we got in this really interesting kind of philosophical, informational conversation on United States politics and healthcare versus UK politics and healthcare. It was amazing. It was pretty good. Oh my gosh. And I mean, healthcare, especially with 2020 being an election year. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with the the coronavirus and the election. Who knows? But healthcare is a, a major issue for sure. It's a huge issue. I think it's actually being. I think it's being highlighted with everything that's going on. Is the health of our citizens, and will we rework this system to take care of our people? You know, there's a lot of questions around. around. Yeah, and I don't know that there's a whole ton of answers either, because that's the thing that, you know, I, I run a news company, right? And we're, we're looking, we're trying to inform people about what's going on. And, you know, you hear contrarian arguments pretty much, or, you know, things that on both sides, there's just not a whole ton of information we have right now. Um, it's a, a tough time for sure. Tell me about that, you know, your news company, and what is your perspective in having a news company with this entire uh, change in our lifestyles? Oh my gosh. I I mean, now we're needed more than ever. Um, So we've kind of been over time trying to figure out, you know, okay, so what do people actually need to know about this? How do we communicate what people need to know? You know, how do we provide value? People are scared. There's a lot of fear, panic, misinformations floating around. So what we've actually found is, you know, a lot of people are turning to us because we have a very unique twist um, where we combine a lot of the need to know information alongside positivity. 
And in times like these where there's so much fear, panic, anxiety, uncertainty about the future, um, that type of, of mission and that value proposition, the type of content we put together is really resonating. And you know, I, I feel like we're providing a very valuable service. What's been the most difficult thing about providing the service in this climate right now? Everything changes so quickly. I mean, like I was mm. going back to what I was talking about with a lot of uncertainty and, and misinformation. I mean, to give you an idea, right? Like people are still trying to calculate the death rate of the virus, but that's really hard to do when you don't, right? Because the way you calculate the death rate is the total number of deaths over the total number of cases. But if you don't know the total number of cases, you can't really get an accurate reading. So I've read studies that have ranged anywhere from like, you know, the death rates kind of about the flu, half the UK population's been infected. Uh, that was coming from the University of Oxford to, you know, different studies that say the death rate's closer to three, 4%. Uh, there's just a lot of conflicting things out there and it seems to change constantly, right? Like uh, the government has, has really had a very quick response um, after a long delay time where they're just, um, just, taken away regulation left and right to try and um, incentivize, you know, vaccines, get them to, to humans, to the population quicker. Uh, there's just a lot of information that changes during these times. And, you know, that's why we're working 24 seven to keep up with it. I mean, how do you keep up with it? It seems like the pace of news and information, even before this was incredibly um, just crazy. Just, just, it was felt like kind of tenuous that any new thing would pop up. I mean, I think about a lot of people haven't really, I don't know if they thought about it, but you know, the Kobe Bryant death was like front and center, like huge. And then who remembers that right now? Yeah. You know, like on a dime, things change. It's just crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, a news cycle moves so fast, right? Because we have just information everywhere. It's just at our fingertips. It's so easily accessible, right? Like there's, you talked about the Kobe Bryant death. That really touched me. And then going back even further, the Australian wildfires. Like who's talking yes. about those right now? Nobody. I mean, yeah. And then think back last year, right? We had the impeachment, right? We had the Mueller yeah. report. We had so much stuff happen that has wow. just been kind of thrown into the ether. And because the, the speed of the news cycle is just so fast. That's incredible. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, those other things you were telling me, I was like, wait a minute, I forgot about those. That's <laughs> incredible. I totally forgot about the wildfires in Australia, which was incredibly damaging. Yeah. Wow. That's, wow. That's incredible. So if somebody is looking through, I think this, maybe you'd be able to answer this in, in a way. I think, you know, you're a very curious guy and I think full of a lot of information is how does someone navigate the news in this climate in a way that will not damage their daily feelings about the news or like their psyche on a regular basis? Yeah. Well, um, can I, I'm going to throw in a shameless plug here and uh, read it. <laughs> Do it, man. <laughs> well, because, you know, you, you're right. They're, the news is overwhelmingly negative a lot of the times, right? Because um, I, I don't know how far back you want to go to kind of un, unpeel the reasons let's why. Let's unpack it. Yeah. Oh, well, let's do it, man. Um, so just the, the easiest way I can think of to start this is like I'm a, I'm a newsophile. And so ever since I was young, uh, I remember being, I don't know, around like five years old. And at that age, I wanted to do everything my dad did. Like he was my role model. I wanted to mimic his every move. So every morning he would sit down with the paper. So every morning I would sit down with the comics and then it was the sports and then it was business. Right. And then eventually I was reading it cover to cover and keep in mind at that time, that was when print newspaper was huge. 
right? Like the internet was just coming into the mainstream. Facebook and Google hadn't usurped any of the advertising revenue yet. Um, and then with the internet, just everything pl- proliferated, right? Like publishers popped up left and right, uh, writing to specific audiences. So when you're writing to a specific audience, sometimes you have the incentive to leave out information, right? Or spin it in a particular way that fits into a worldview. And so there's a whole ton of bias and misinformation out there. And it takes time to sift through, right? And now the name of the game is clicks, right? It's engagement. It's uh, you want to get that advertising revenue. And what generates that, that outrage, that, um, that reaction for you to click something, it's negativity, right? It's been proven that negativity has a stronger, generates stronger reactions than, than positive stuff. So if you're spending a whole ton of time sifting through uh, like a particular topic, like sometimes I would spend, I don't know, like hour on one topic, reading three, four, five, six, ten different publications. And at that time, I'm spending that much time. I'm exposed to so much negativity. It's like, wow, the world sucks. You know, the world's ending. Yeah. What's what's you know, where where can it go from here? But that's not the case, right? There's so many positive things happening, and those never got surfaced, right? I see them every single day, like neighbors helping neighbors. I know people working for phenomenal foundations that are making such a large impact on the world, and. I wanted to surface those stories alongside need to know information because it's so important to know what's going on, right? It helps you make sense of the world around you. There's so much value in that. But in doing so, it's not worth it if you feel terrible, like if it generates more anxiety than positivity. So trying to pair those two and pairing those two is exactly what what the donut is. Because at the end of the day, I just wanted to design a company that was the antithesis to everything that I felt about, everything I hated about the news. The news, I think it's, I, I've had my own issues with the news. I think for maybe just recently until this year, before coronavirus, I started getting back into actually looking at the news. And what was hard for me is because for years I was like, I'm not watching the news, man. I just can't do this. <laughs> like, it's just, this is like crushing my soul, you know? And like, and then when I started getting back and I was like, this is why it's crushing my soul, you know? <laughs> But it's like, it's very difficult because I think even from a news angle with the coronaviruses, it's like, you want to know what's going on. You want to know, have there been any breakthroughs in vaccines and treatments? What's going on in these different states and those things? But then like, it could pull you in this weird rabbit hole where you just feel down, like it's just getting worse and worse. And it's like, how do you protect yourself from that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you look at these broad overarching trends, and when you do that, you realize that the world is getting better. Right? like one, one thing that really sticks with me, I came across this, I think it was like 2018. Um, and this, for whatever reason, really stuck with me because you know how you hear about just abject poverty everywhere in the world. Um, there's seven plus billion people. There's a lot of very um, areas that are, are struggling, you know, f- financially. And what I found out was out of the 7 billion people in the world, as of like November, 2018, more than 50% of the world was middle-class and in no chance of falling into poverty. Hmm. That's incredible. How does, where's that information been? I mean, I'm I'm not hearing this information. I'm not reading this, man. (laughs) Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a solutions guy. Right. So like, uh, and, and, have you heard of like the Boyan Slat and his um, his project to clean up the Great Pacific Ocean garbage? Yes, yes. I listened to a podcast about it. I think, yeah, 
yeah, it's incredible. And, and stories like that need, I think they deserve to get more play, right? Rather than the, the gloom and doom, right? Like some of the gloom and doom is, is necessary, right? Because it's accurate, it's science. But also at the same time, you know, there's people that are working so hard on solutions and like, you know, we can find one. And uh, it's, it's just trying to have a, a positive outlook and, you know, look at the world and, and just generally believe people are more good than bad. Yeah, I think I've been having a lot of conversations about that. And, you know, one of the things <laughs> people tell me, yeah, man, one of the things people are always telling me, like, this has got to be the thing because it shut down so much of our life. This has got to be the thing to turn the tide, to make people come together and all that. And uh, I, I like, I really want to believe that, you know, I'm a very positive person. But on the other end, I know what happens when time elapses with people and they and their memory fades of something. I know what happens. The behavior a lot of times alters, not in the way you think it will. I would imagine, I think that this will be the big enough one to kind of gut that, but I also don't know that. I think time is going to be the great teller of this story. You know? Yeah. I mean, time, time does tell all, right? And in retrospect, when you look back on things, we do have such a short-term memory just as humans you know, and try to get back to normal life as quickly as possible. But it does help to bring, like everybody's united. You know, everybody I talk to is like, hey, how can I help you out? You know, it's tough times. Is there anything I can do for you? It's always the the give, right? There's no, none of that take. And yeah. that's so incredible to me because one of the ways that, you know, we can bring ourselves together, you, you hear about it all the time in like these, uh, the alien movies, right? Like there's a, a severe outside threat that causes <laughs> yeah. the human race to band together, right? And the coronavirus is... I hate comparing it to an alien invasion, but it's our know. alien movie, man. Right. It is. Right. It pretty much is, right? I mean, we all have to it's not like it's an invisible enemy that doesn't care about our political affiliations and our backgrounds and all that stuff. It's just like, hey, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. You figure out, you know, how to deal with it. It's just it's interesting how like this whole conversation about the news. And this whole aspect of like, what's real, what's fake, what's legitimate jur journalism has changed to me from what I've seen when I'm growing up, you know, like there's all these layers to news, you know? Yeah. And what I always hear a lot is like Walter Cronkite, right? Like a lot of people grew up with, with Walter Cronkite and he was like a straight shooter, like straight down the middle. You never knew which way the guy leaned. He just told it to you like it was. And that's kind of the the same mentality that we try to try to bring, right? It's like we want we know that there's people out there trying to spin stuff. We know that it's sometimes tough to get to the bottom of things, but at the end of the day, we deserve to know, right? And and I'm a firm believer in the fact that information should be readily available. Correct information should be readily available. <laughs> um, Correct <and> information. <laughs> that's, that's the key. To, that's underlined and circled and bolded Correct. all at the same time. Yeah, it's that's like. I remember when I was growing up and uh, um, well, I was a teenager, younger than that, like the news was like, you reported, the news was reported to you. And this is what it was. Here's the factual evidence. It wasn't an editorial news system. It wasn't like, well, here's what Dan Rather thinks about this. You know, like it was like, here's here reporting live from this war torn country. Here's what's going on here. Yada, yada, yada. And now I feel like it's a very editorial news system where it's like all these people in the media, they're trying to like put their spin on it and like, hey, look at me. This is, I believe in this. I'm reporting this news. Here's what I think about the news that I reported about this. 
I'm like, why don't you just report it? <laughs> I'm like, how so about we, that? Stop we, trying to influence me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I want to have, I want to be able to form my own opinions on what's going on. Uh, but a lot of, of what I see is now news seems to be turning into entertainment a lot, right? You have personality driven uh, news instead of actual event driven news. Well, have you, uh, I mean, I think when we talk, I mean, you play baseball and stuff in college, right? And stuff. Yes. And yeah. Sure. You're, you're into, maybe you're into sports, maybe you're not, but I, I'm very much into sports. Oh yeah. And, uh, and I, I, for the longest time I was watching a lot of these, um, you know, these like debate shows on TV and first take and undisputed and all these things, where, you know, they just yell at each other and then they give their opinions on things. And I'm like, when did this happen? We're like, instead of just reporting about what's happened, you know, it's like everybody has an opinion about what happens in sports and that whole thing. It's entertainment. Now I feel like they're acting because it's entertainment. Well, let me be really over the top so that this creates great ratings and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And I, I think part of it might also just appeal to our tribal nature, right? Like we want mm. a, a champion that has the same viewpoint that we do. Right? And we want to root for that person arguing against the person that has the opposite viewpoint that we do. And I mean, it's for whatever reason, that's, that's entertaining. Right. And I get it. I think it's entertaining too, but you know, at the end of the day, I want to, I want to know what's going on first before any of that. And then I'll listen to all my opinions. Well, it's interesting. I feel like, I mean, we're just going to go there. I feel like that's kind of the thing with our political as you know, deals in our country is it's like we're on teams, you know, it's like the red teams playing the blue team. And then you must pick a side and then you're going to be, even if it doesn't make sense, you're going to support that team, you know, whatever. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. There's like lack of critical thinking, you know, like if you have to just be on one team and then you can, and you have to believe in every single thing that that team abides by, even if you're like, I don't really think so on some of these things, you know, and like, we're all about teams, like we're fighting each other. It's weird to me. Oh my gosh, it's 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 actually incredible because at the end of the day, we forget we're all on the same team. You know, at the, yeah. end, the end of the day, and that's also part of the reason that I wanted to start the donut is you see a whole bunch of statistics right from like Gallup and Pew and and all of mm. these reputable just data gathering services about how the country is becoming more divided, right? And it's very marked; it's it's notable. But one of the main things that I've always paid attention to is the fact that uh, the both sides disagree on basic facts now right and i think, <laughs> and like that's wait a minute wait a minute basic fact disagreement oh yeah so um i i don't have examples on the specific facts but if you look at a lot of these studies they'll say uh they'll ask people like do you believe that both sides agree on you know facts anymore or the same facts or the same information and like 30 to 40 percent of people don't so knowing that and knowing that we're not starting from the same place, that also contributes to the tribalism, right? So what I want to do is create a place where people can start like on both sides across the entire spectrum, start from one, the same place, and then form their own opinion as they learn more about that particular topic. And that's kind of actually worked because what we've seen, we did a survey of our entire uh, audience earlier this year, and 20% of our audience identifies themselves as like independent, as center. Mm -hmm. 39.2% identify themselves as right of center. And get this, 39.2% the exact same identify themselves as left of center. Wow. 
Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's, those are fairly even numbers. I mean, for that, I still can't get over disagreeing about facts. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure how I feel about that. Well, I mean, we can uh, we can throw in some some very controversial topics, but I'd rather not not go there. No, I know we don't. No, I'm just like I don't understand how you could be presented this the same factual information and you're like disagree about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, that just seems strange to me. <laughs> I mean, it's it's odd. It really is. You know, I, I don't really have an answer for it, but you know, that's just the way the way it seems. We need to get some answers for this because that's just weird, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like if two people saw a giraffe in in the wild, and you're both looking at it, and you're that's factually a giraffe, and then they go, "No, no, that's not a giraffe. No, like, what? No, it is. Like, no, we're looking at the same thing. Like, no, we're not looking at the same thing. Well, like, what? <laughs> well, technically, the name of it's not a giraffe. Technically, yes, <laughs> right. It's like, and and you're just yeah. arguing about semantics at that point, honestly. Yeah, that's that's uh, wow, that's fascinating. So, where is news going in your mind um, in the, in the future? I mean, it's hard to project that, but like, what are the trends saying about where news is going? That's that's a really interesting one because I think it fits in with a lot of the overarching entertainment trends as well. So you see, uh, but you see both sides of the coin, right? Like you have a, a specific type of audience that wants very quick hit stuff, right? They don't have a whole ton of time. They're not that interested in the news, but they see the value in being informed. And those types of people are trending more towards like short form video instead of watching like a super long segment. Uh, where you only delve into a topic for like 45 seconds. It's a shouting match between uh, counterbalancing experts. You don't really learn anything when you move on. So people are kind of turning towards like very quick hit video, very quick hit email, very quick hit podcasts on their commute. Um, but then on the flip side of that, people who really want to delve into topics, delve into stuff, you see a lot of very topic focused uh, journalism. And so like a podcast about one particular story, like Tiger King, for example, Right? Like a lot of media companies will pull out like spinoff podcasts that talk all about Tiger King or talk all about uh, WeWork situation. That's another good example. Right. Um, so those are super in-depth. They're series. They're story driven. Right. They're more like documentaries in podcast form than anything else. So you have these these two kind of counterbalancing sides of the spectrum. And it just depends on the type of person that um, that's consuming the news. Hmm. Interesting. I mean. Certainly podcasts, I would be interested to hear your take as the kind of movement of podcasts have just been going crazy and the movement of people consuming podcasts seems to be increasingly uh, growing. But then I see information that as a lot of people have been home, that there's been some articles that I've read that podcast listenership has decreased when people have been home. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. The biggest reason there would be commute time, I'd say. I think it's people in the car anymore. And that's, uh, and what I see with a lot of podcasts and I've been doing, um, like we're about to launch one, right? So I've, I've gone really, I've gone down the rabbit hole in terms of like the, the market-based research. And a lot of um, what I've been seeing is the commute time and just filling quote unquote dead space, right? So like if you're doing um, chores, like unloading the dishwasher or cleaning, or you're in the shower right? and instead of, you know, just that space uh, time being dead, or you're listening to music, you're filling the time with learning something. Um, so that's a, a lot of what I've seen. And I've also seen a lot of those same articles you were talking about too. Um, and I, I would say commute time would be the biggest reason that a lot of those numbers have dropped. Right. Because people were, let's say, driving to, you know, 30, 40 minutes or something like that. And they just put on 
the podcast, whereas now they're not able to do that because they're at home and there's other things going on in their lives that maybe are taking some precedent over that. And, you know, it's funny having that alone time. People don't have that alone time unless you're by yourself, you know, like a lot of people with families, multiple children, you know, uh, significant others. And you're actually a lot of people are way more busier now than they were before because they didn't have the time. Um, They weren't always having that in their face. And so they had these moments of alone time and where they could just, you know, hours on end of doing whatever work and stuff. So now they're being push back into a lifestyle that for many people, they were not accustomed to having on a regular basis. Yeah. It's forced proximity, right? And, uh, forced proximity. <laughs> yes. Um, I remember, do you have, you have kids, right? I have one daughter yet. Yeah, eight, she's eight. Yep. How's, how's she handling the, the quarantine or like, how, how are you guys, are you finding it easy to keep her entertained and, and all of that? Or how's that going? Good question. I think it's a layered answer. So she's at the age where she understands it on some level. She sees us watching the news and getting information. And she came up to me and she goes, Dad, I'm really nervous about coronavirus. I heard about the testing and that the testing could be very like difficult, you know, that they stick the thing up your nose and like, they would like bothered her you know, about that whole thing. They were talking to her about it. But then like she vacillates into like, does she feels useless? because she's not at school and school is her job, you know, like it's what she does and, and meeting friends and all that stuff. And she's like, how can I feel less useless? I mean, it's an eight-year-old talking about this and how do, how do I be more a part of helping out? And I mean, I was so proud of her. And so, you know, we've really provided enough structure, but enough leeway to do other things and enjoy what, you know, watching shows and stuff like that. But I, I think that we've been realistic with her. I said, you know, honey, I don't think school is going to come back this year, you know, for, for this, this season. Like, it'd probably be in the fall, but I really think we're just going to be here. And I think that's been hard on her a little bit because, <clears throat> you know, she's, she's, kids are just like adults. They have a rhythm going with school and they have things going on in their life. There's a whole part of their life that we don't see, we don't observe when they're at school. So all of a sudden she's trying to fill the space too. With those things. But I think at her age, it's, she'll remember it. She'll definitely remember this time, you know? Yeah. Well, and she probably doesn't have, and I, I don't know um, if you guys give her access to like, uh, like video conferencing stuff or if her friends even have access to that either. So like, is there any way that she can communicate with, uh, with the people she typically goes to school with? It has to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're going to start doing that in a couple of weeks for our school system. And so but we're in a, it's a weird place for him. I mean, I told you about Blaine a little bit, a little, but uh, it's just weird. It's this weird conglomeration of like uh, pretty, like very good middle class, which we're in very wealthy people, but then a, a lot of um, poverty in the county, in Whatcom County. So you have all these different uh, factions of kids smashed together into the school system. And so some kids, you know, they don't have access to, um, you know, video conferencing. They don't have laptops and things of that nature. I mean, everybody has phones, generally speaking, but all that technology. And then you have like the bus comes by our neighborhood and it drops off food for the kids that need, you know, they're getting fed with um, breakfast and lunch. You know, they need assistance for food. And so you kind of have those things going on while the school system is trying to figure out how to, how to have school again on a, on a virtual level for it. 
So, but then there's other like clients of mine who are in very wealthy school districts where, you know, their schools, all the kids have computers. They went, they already had a bunch of stuff put together. The infrastructure is well put together. You know, they just be able to throw money at the problem and really get it up to speed. And that's not indicative of a lot of school systems for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you're also pretty uniquely located too, right? Like the, the outbreak kind of what started in Washington, right? And, and you're far did. cities that you're not like in that urban population, but also you're close enough that it probably, I mean, it probably is by you, right? Like it, it maybe impacted things and people that you know. It's been weird, I would say. You know, I remember when there was the first case and the United States was here in Washington, uh, and I didn't think too much about it. I remember my dad telling me, he's like, watch out for this. This is a, this is a thing, you know, and he, he had been in the government for a long time and, you know, worked in the White House and Pentagon. And he was like, I just, I know these things, man. He's like, just be aware of it. And I was like, whatever. And honestly, I was like, I'm not going to pay attention to this. Little did I know. And it exploded in Seattle, especially in this one nursing home, Lifeland, and uh, Lifeland Nursing Home, I think, in Kirkland, right outside of Seattle. I'm very familiar with that area. And basically, generally, the spread has been, it has spread to different counties, but it hasn't been as aggressive as I think they thought it would be in Washington. One, because our governor was like hardcore. He went hardcore very quickly and was one of the first, we were one of the first states to go into quarantine and and really like close, he was one of the first governors, I think, to cover, to close bars and restaurants. And so we've, we've been used to that, but I think our location has been really strange for us in a positive way. We're a border town, like a mile from the border. So the border is completely closed to Canada. So no one could come in to see us from that direction. And then the next closest towns to us are basically 15 to 20 miles away. And the majority of people here don't travel that much as it is. They, they think going 25 minutes away to Bellingham is like a real big deal. It's like a hard thing to do. So we don't have a lot of people coming here and nobody's really leaving. So it's created this weird insulation zone where life has remained very similar. Things are closed, but it's always slow here. So it hasn't seemed any different on that sense. Yeah. I mean, there's, it sounds like there's definitely, you know, worse, worse places to be. It's the same way. So Austin, so I, I live in the Austin area. That's where our company is located. And we have this massive festival, <clears throat> excuse me, around that time this year, it's called South by Southwest. I've been to it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you know all about it then. Yep, it, I know it. It's like anywhere from 350 to 400, 450, like just hundreds of millions of dollars into the Austin economy. And that got canceled. And this was before there was even a case in the entire county, right? It was very proactive, preemptive. Um, but it's interesting because I see the flip side of that, right? Because you know I'm, I'm a, a local business owner and I know a whole ton of other local business owners that count on that type of revenue, right? And they count on that money. And then on the, the flip side of that, the coronavirus is shutting down a lot of stuff, right? Everything's just on halt. So they're, you know, they're really struggling. So I see both sides of this where the financial toll and also the health toll, one of my buddies... Um, knows a few people that actually have the virus that are hospitalized with it. I know um, a couple of people whose parents have it, right? Like the, the impact, at least to me is so it's, it feels so personal. And then mm. 
Another thing as well that I found interesting, um, I'm 26 years old, right? I was born in, in 93. So I was not quite in the workforce during the last recession, right? Like in 08 or 09. So I always saw like my friends' parents and like my parents and all of the adults I know super stressed out, right? About like all of the, the financial worries and that just takes a toll. And I never quite understood it. But now on the flip side of that, right? Actually being in the workforce and being like personally exposed to people I do business with that are struggling a lot. It's, I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it hurts. Right. And it's, it's so hard. Like I, I don't envy the, the people who have to make the decision about like the economic toll and human lives and just weighing that it's a, uh, it's a tough one. I think it's very tough. I, it's interesting. Um, when my grandfather was alive, you know, he was alive around the great depression time and fascinating hearing stories about that and you know going to the bank to get money it's no money there you know and and people you know uh, accounts of the dust bowl and world war ii and all these great thing tra tragedies and difficult times uh going on and um, obviously this one is really crazy i mean the complete shutdown essentially of our way of living uh, and I think it's it, what's going to be interesting to me is uh, the studies on human behavior during this time. Mm. Um, it's unprecedented, this level of isolation. Um, and we would have to go back to uh, almost the 1400s and quarantine. Level. That's basically what we're, we're enacting 1400s level quarantine. When they used to have ships would come through and they'd have to quarantine the ships is where they got a lot of this from, I believe. We have to enact super old levels of quarantine to combat something like this. Um, so it's, I'd be interested in the isolation aspect of it because, I mean, just observationally, I'm seeing people, they're struggling tremendously with this level of isolation. And my kind of advice is always like, listen, you know, I think it's there's a reality to this is that it's not going to be quick like we want. We're, we live in an Amazon Prime now society. We want things done quickly. We want them over quickly. We want Amazon Prime now. And this is not Amazon Prime now. And that's what I think is very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and I, I can speak to that as well because I'm I'm alone pretty much in, in Texas. I live in a, an apartment by myself. I have my dog. Right? So I haven't had any human contact since the quarantine happened. And I, I'm what I like to call an extroverted introvert. Right? Like I love people, but I'll same time, stay the hell away from me. I want my time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like the initial part of it, um, you know, I'm going, okay, this, you know, this quarantine isn't all bad, but I started to realize how much we actually need socialization, right? And actually need to talk to people and interact with people because I'm chomping at the bit, man. Like I've been looking forward to, to talking to you again for <laughs> I don't know, like, like a month now. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do today? Ah, you know, I'm just going to do the same thing I did yesterday. Okay can't leave the house, can't go anywhere. You know, it's, uh, it, it is definitely tough. And I've also read some stuff too. Um, I'll have to, to send it to you cause you might some yeah. value in it, but like astronauts who have been in isolation in space have talked about how they've coped mentally with a lot of it. And it's been super helpful uh, for me to read at least. Oh, that's cool. I, I saw like, I think Scott Kelly, the guy or who's been in space for like a year or something. And I think it's a good baseline to hear from people like that to understand it will be okay. You know, you will, there's things, there's just adjustments that have to be made in that sense. And I think, 
our collective consciousness, hopefully as, as you know, the world is just, we just have to do this. It's just, there's some times in life when you're back into a corner and you just don't have options. You know, you have to just face whatever is your last option. And this is it for us. We're not willing to be, hey, everybody do whatever you want and let's just see how it falls out. We're not going to do that. So this is what we have to do. And I think coming to terms with that reality, for some people, it would be quicker and some people, it will be much slower. But I think the quicker you can wrap your mind around the reality of what we're living, how we're living, and that it is not a short-term thing, and we don't know all the information yet, you just have to, you just have to live, you know? Yeah, just control what you can control, as I always All my mentors tell me that because I have this big problem with just worrying about things that are just completely outside of my control. It's like, oh, how is this meeting going to go? It's like, okay, are you prepared for the meeting? Yes, Mm -hmm. it'll go fine. Are you not prepared for the meeting? No, it probably won't go fine. So it's like just controlling what you can control and just knowing that at the end of the day, what the anxiety you have or the thoughts that you have or all the feelings that you have are going, it's going to be all right. You know, um, it's something that's out of your control. So you might as well just let go. Um, and it's easier said than done. Obviously I'm still, I still struggle with it. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I, I have struggled with that my whole life. I'm a big preparer and things of that nature. And I think the control thing has definitely been an aspect for me. I was thinking about before we got on this call, like, I remember when I came across your, post on spot, I guess. I believe that's where I saw it. And I was fascinated by how you are a very curious person like you know, with conversation and that you would take like Uber rides. That seems like forever now ago, probably, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and talk with, just talk with people, you know, about their lives and stuff. Where, where does that come from? I, that's a phenomenal question. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. Uh, but if I had to, if I had to unpack that, um, I would say I, I traveled a lot as a kid, right? I lived in a whole bunch of different places. So Hong Kong, India, California, Massachusetts, Michigan, Texas, right? You know, the list goes on. And with that being said, I had to make new friends like every two, three years because this is before social media. And I'm, I'm moving when you had to write, you had pen pals, right? You're writing letters back and forth. Mm-hmm. And to be perfectly frank, I always hated writing letters. So <laughs> I would never really do it. So I'd always lose touch with people. And it wasn't as easy to, to keep in touch nowadays. So I'd have to make new friends every single place we'd go across a bunch of different cultures. And for whatever reason, I love learning about things. And I think I've, I've told you this as well. One of the things I always try to live by is there's no boring people, only bad questions. And if you're genuinely interested in the answers to those questions, well, then every you, every conversation has the opportunity to be absolutely incredible. And that's I think that's where it comes from, at least. I've, like I said, never been asked that question before. <laughs> There'll be more questions like this, Peter. Okay. <laughs> well, what did you learn? Um, I have a very similar background. I, you know, I moved every couple of years growing up and I lived all over the world. And, but what did you learn about people by living in so many different places? I mean, we're all the same. That's, that's a big one. And I was, and I, I might just have been exposed to the right types of people, but incredible, helpful, positive, just giving, caring 
unselfish individuals across every single place I went to. And it was so cool just to see the just human beings um, across cultures trying to interact, trying to socialize, trying to teach each other a little bit about who they are, where they came from, and you know, just try to understand each other on a deeper level. It was really cool. Welcome to the intermission space. Take a deep breath right now. One more. Feel yourself becoming centered. Your meditation may begin like this, but for mine, mine is often conversation. Good, positive, deep, respectful conversation with another person. Our connections are being tested and what it's showing us is how badly we need each other. We need to be connected. We need to have quality conversations. After this is done, I urge you to go out and have a quality conversation with someone you may know and someone you don't know. I promise something great will happen. Yeah, I would say I have the same feeling about it. I mean, I think, you know, if you if you haven't been to a lot of places, and let's say internationally, especially internationally, but even inside the United States, I think it's a very it's very difficult to have ideas about what's going on in other places that are really set in your mind. Uh, because I know that in traveling the globe and living all across the globe that um, you, you, you get this perception of how you think, maybe we'll say this part of the world is, is, and because the news says, comes back to the news, the news says, this is how this is, or these people are extremists and that. And then when you're there, you, you don't see that. You don't, you don't experience that, that level of hostility or the extremists. Obviously, you know, that, that is there, but on the majority of the people I've ever met internationally and from Malaysia to Germany to Prague, I mean, everywhere, have been amazingly beautiful people, amazingly incredible human beings. And so I, it makes me interested in how this is going to affect our idea of traveling after this, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really interesting, right? Because, I mean, the airlines are getting bailed out, right? Cruise ships, right? You know, the whole travel and, and hospitality industry, I know a ton of people that are in that industry. And I mean, they're being furloughed. A lot of people are being late. Like travel is pretty much halted. There's been talk of, um, you know, stopping domestic flights within the U.S. Even, and I just it, saw that. Yeah. yeah, right. And and you know where it recovers or how it recovers is probably going to be a slow process. And where does it? Does the world stay virtual? Right? Do people like working from home more? Does the world transition to that? You know, who knows? Like I think, like you said earlier, right? Time time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, I, I mean, I certainly have thoughts about that. I mean, and then there's another layer, which I mean, obviously as a news company, you guys are probably covering all types of stuff, but I remember telling a friend of mine, I'm like, this was way before there was articles about 
you know, migration of the people in the United States to more rural areas, I said, this may change how people see cities and, and whether they want to stay inside of cities and, and the density issues and things of this nature. I mean, how will that change? You know? Yeah. Well, and you also have the, the financial incentive there too. I like this living in the cities. It's a lot higher cost of living than outside. I think you can point to Silicon Valley as, as an instance of that. Like if you have a family of four and you make six figures, you're living in under the poverty line. And so if you can move to an area where you can cut down your expenses, right, like that changes your life significantly, but also you don't have at your fingertips access to all of those people, all of the activities, all of the culture that you have in those urban centers. So it's a, it's an interesting trade-off, right? And I, I do see both sides of that. Like I said, I'm an extroverted introvert. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've lived in a lot of big cities. I've lived in like crazy backwoods country. And uh, I kind of like the middle ground. I like where I'm at currently because I could be very close to large cities, but feel very rural at the same time and then have water and glaciers. It's like amazing. But uh, I was driving in Vancouver before all this hit, my wife and I, and we're driving. It's a beautiful city. Vancouver is amazing. It's an amazing. It's probably one of the cleanest cities in the world. It's super amazing. But it was so crowded. I remember like, I can't be here much longer. I was like, we got to get out of here. It's way too crowded for me, you know, and just, I like the energy, but it was also kind of like, it's just like too busy here, you know, and, but there's some people, they thrive off of that. They love, you tell somebody from New York City, and my family's from New York, like New Yorkers, they're very proud. They love the city. They love the energy, the hustle and bustle, you know, of that. So there's different sides to it. Yeah. And I mean, I, for me, it depends on my mood, right? Like I was, so I live right outside of Austin, kind of suburb of Austin, which means I live like seven miles away. So it takes me only 45 minutes to get into the city, but that's neither mm -hmm. there. Um, but, you know, just being so close, like if I'm in a, a mood to, to be around people, right, to go see some cool stuff, I love the ability to just go downtown and be there so quickly, you know, and yeah. just having access to all of that stuff and the hustle and bustle. And like you're talking about being able to feed off of that energy. There's something that's awesome about that. But the introvert side of me goes, I can't be around that all the time, right? Like I need my alone time. I need my retreat, which is why I'm, I'm with you, man. I like, I like having that balance, being in the middle um, and having some place to just kind of retreat to, to, to enjoy my solitude. What do you think if you, again, these are hard things to do, but I think they're good theoretical things or hypothetical things to think about. If you fast forwarded 10 years from now and you can look back on what's happening in our lives right now, what do you think we're going to learn from this? What do you think the commentary will be about this time in our, in our species? Hmm. Well, when, and again, right, this is purely theoretical, so I'm, I'm way yeah. off here. Um, I'm hopeful that looking back on this, we'll say, this was a transformative time for the human race, for the country, for just everybody, where we decided to band together and make some really positive changes. But the flip side, um, you know, right, the, the pessimistic side of me goes, well, like we were talking about earlier, do we have such a short memory that a lot of the things that we learned from this just fall by the wayside? And I can point to um, like the, and I know it's nowhere close to as severe, but every time something like this happens, there's uh, barriers, there's guidelines that get put in place, right? Like there's a yeah. lot created, there's processes that are established, that sort of thing. So if anything like this comes around again, we're prepared for it. 
but that requires maintenance, right? And these things are unpredictable, right? Like this kind of came out of nowhere. So will we establish those processes? Will we establish those procedures? Will we know what to do when this comes next time? Yeah. But will we be prepared when it comes? Well, I don't know if we'll maintain a lot of the stuff that we, you know, that we've, we've put in place and established because of what's going on right now. But the hopeful side of me, and this is where I'm going to end, the hopeful side of me says <laughs> we will, um, and we will remember just like, um, and again, I hate comparing it just because it's something so different, but 9-11 is still ingrained in my, in my head. Like it's so ingrained in my head. I still remember everything about that particular day. And I hope this time period is, is the same. Yeah, I've actually made uh, some comparison to that in the sense of not like the um, like the deaths and stuff, but more of like what I believe will be the outcome of ways of living afterwards um, for that. And I think I've talked about so a couple podcasts because 9-11 was extremely personal to me. I was living in Virginia. I was in high school uh, when it happened. Uh, it was just like a, it was like a weird span of time um, for, for that, um, not high school, sorry, I was in college at James Madison university. And my dad was working at the Pentagon and my dad was, was a Colonel in the army is very high ranking. And I remember the story, him telling me of, of seeing the, the roof start to cave in, in the Pentagon because the plane hit the Pentagon and seeing the red lights going. And my dad barely made it out of the building before the roof caved in completely for that. And I didn't know if he was alive at all. Had no clue. I was in Western Virginia. You're, you, you know, trying to call in to Washington, D.C. was impossible. Impossible. So it was a good day. I had no clue if he was alive or dead. Um, so it was very just, you know, my father lost so many soldiers and um, just co-workers. It was incredible. Uh, that time, deeply personal for me and my family. But I remember that ended how we uh, had security. Our previous versions of security in airports completely changed, completely changed. I can remember meeting friends of mine at the airport at the terminal door. I mean, there's a lot of people living now that have never experienced that. They have no clue what that's like to actually walk in an airport and walk through a joke of a little scanner and go right up to the terminal door and go, Hey, how's it going? Oh man. Hugging people right at the door. Like I miss that so much. Oh my gosh. I miss, I used to love doing that all the time. Meet friends on trips. Back when I was, um, uh, going on my, my visits, my official visits for track and field to go to college. I remember I went to Florida state on one of my official visits and I came back and my dad was right there at the, at the terminal door. Like I can't imagine that anymore, the way that it changed that. So I feel like there's going to be some level of that type of change after this. Could it be hygiene? Could, you know, could it be sanitation? I don't know, but I think there'll be some level of, we're not getting, we're not accepting this type of behavior anymore type of thing, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause I've seen uh, and, and heard a lot of talk about Maybe this changes the way we greet each other, right? Like maybe we don't shake hands. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's really, I mean, it's interesting to think about, right? Cause, cause what would it change? Because it's, it's health related. So, you know, it could change the healthcare system. Um, it could change social interaction, you know, like we've been talking about it's, uh, but you know, 
drawing the the comparison in terms of like the airport security, I'm one of those people that didn't know what it was like to to do what you're doing. Because <laughs> right? I'm um you know 26 years old at the at you know 9/11, it's still ingrained in my head. That's absolutely an incredible story. Like, holy cow! Like you know that must have been just absolutely burned in your memory. And you know I didn't oh, I didn't man. experience even close to that, and it's burned into mine. I mean. A lot of people have a memory of 9-11. I mean, it was, it's difficult, but you know, there are people who live maybe like on the West Coast and and they know how terrible it was, but there wasn't, you know, it wasn't close to them, you know, unless you knew somebody that was working over there or something, you know, it was kind of, well, that's on that side of the country. It's really terrible. And then you saw the news with Bush, you know, and the whole thing. And, but for me, it was just so personal. You know, I remember calling my mom. I remember I got through to my mom. And she was so strong. She was like a rock, man. She's like, I don't know anything. I don't know if your dad's alive or not. I I can't give you any of that information. All I know is we just got to stay calm. You know, it's it's a mess right now. We just let us sort it out. And then probably that evening, we got a phone call from an apartment complex that they had put military personnel in. And my dad called and it was just, I was so relieved so relieved that he was alive but the stories of what happened like this is not some this is not a news story of what happened this is like actual being in the building watching the the roof cave in first person story and all the funerals my dad had to go to i mean it was just like it was crazy so for me you know i was teaching the class as a graduate assistant at James Madison and one of my fellow graduate assistants came to me and said, you know, Darian, um, I, I'm going to take over your class right now. I was like, why? Why? You know, he said, I just, I need to take over your class right now. So then they took me upstairs to the graduate assistant lounge. I've never told this story on air. So this is a first for a lot of people. And they had a TV in there and that's when I saw what happened. And I immediately, I lost it. I completely lost it because I knew where my dad was. And that was just like, and everybody, everybody knew my dad uh, at the college because I had talked about him a lot and they, everybody knew that I was going to have a rough time because they, they just knew. They weren't sure. And, and so their connection to me made 9-11 completely personal for them uh, with that. So I know what it's like to have the uncertainty. Like, you know, it's not like this. This is very different. I mean, this is affecting all humans. But I do think that after that happened, I, I remember flying on planes that were empty, just me and a couple other people. I was like, I'm going to do it, man. After after my dad had almost had that, I was like, I'm just going to do stuff, man. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to do stuff. And I used to sit and I used to like lay down in the, the aisles of planes. Like I was like, man, I'm used to having my own aisle. And when everybody started flying again, I was like, what's going on with this, man? <laughs> like I'm used to having planes in myself, yeah. you know, but it's, I, I know that survivor mentality and that sense of doom and dread. And now we're all feeling on that on some level. When is this going to end? What's the enemy? Who we're gonna? How do we combat this foe? And that's what's happening on on in an invisible enemy on this level. Very difficult to fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does and and this will inevitably does this look at does this change the way that we look at life? 
right? Like having a transformative experience like you had with nine 11 and, and your dad, um, you know, I, I had kind of like a life changing event, uh, myself. I almost died my senior year at college, um, where I was, you know, playing baseball and I played at Michigan state, took a ground ball. I was an infielder, took a ground ball off my pinky and my, uh, bone went through my nail bed. It punctured my nail bed. I had to get that stuff. I had to get it sutured most painful thing ever because they legitimately cut off with a pair of scissors, my nail, like my fingernail. Yeah. And it was, I will never forget that. Cause it was one of some of the most pain that I've ever been in. So they sutured it, right? I had stitches. Those ended up getting infected, had to go to the hospital, ended up having MRSA, nine surgeries on my pinky, right? Like on my tiny little pinky. At one point I had close to 50 stitches in it. Um, and I was told at the time I had like a 35% chance of death. They were talking about cutting off my pinky. And I remember laying in the hospital bed, trying to come to terms with my life. And that, when I pulled through all of that, that changed the way I looked at everything forever. Right. Cause like when you get so close to the thing that you fear so much and you think that like, you know, there's a possibility that that's going to happen. And then you overcome it, right? Or, or that fear doesn't materialize. I think it it changes the way you do things, right? Like you were talking about, you're like, I'm just going to do things. And that was something very similar to me as well. I had that same reality. It's like, just do it. Who cares what people think? Right? You only got one life to live. Yeah, totally true. I mean, I hope that this transforms a lot of people and they really take some time. And now people are forced to take time to really, you know, be in a different environment and situation they're in. But like I said, time will tell, man. I know for me, it affected me, but I still fell back into some old things, you know, uh, even after experiencing 9-11. It's just the nature of humans, you know. The further we get away from tra uh, traumatic things, sometimes we, you know, we we loosen the grip on things, you know. And I just am fascinated, though, by like, I, I remember the security changing, but I also remember people complaining about it <laughs> as well. Like, why do I have to go through all this security? And I tell people, I'm like, because we don't want the same thing to happen again. We have to have increased security. Don't you want it to be as safe as possible to travel in a plane? You know, like, well, I'm like, remember what happened. Remember what happened. Then maybe you'll think about why we're doing this, you know? So I think, I think like I saw like a concert on TV the other day and I was like, I wonder if we're going to be doing that again. With hundred thousand people in a concert crammed up next to each other, not washing their hands, really nasty, man. You know, like <laughs> or, I don't know, man. <laughs> like you go to, I, I grew up going to the big house, right, Michigan Stadium, and they have the troughs in the the men's bathroom in, in lieu of urinals, Ooh. right? Like just thinking about that yeah. now, going, man, <laughs> there's uh, there's some bacteria in there. That's uh, that's for sure. <laughs> like sporting events, man. When are those going to come back? You know, like uh, I keep watching. ESPN or it's baseball season and stuff like that. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting time, man. That's, I think that's all, that's an understatement. How do you integrate it back though? It's like, okay. I mean, okay. Let's say you start the baseball season or you bring NBA basketball, you know, it's like, how do you allow fans to all come in there? All these people. And you just don't know like whether they're carriers and if the testing's not, you know, as widespread as it needs to be. How do you actually do that? You know, like, do you temperature check everybody or something? You know, like, I mean, you probably got to be free and clear, right? Like completely free and clear to allow it to progress, you know, 
to the the point that we're talking about. But it's also interesting. I don't know if you've you've seen. Um, there's been rumors and some sources have confirmed that like Tiger and Phil are going to do another rematch with a little mm. twist. Uh, they're going, and this is rumored, right? This isn't corroborated, but Tom Brady and Peyton Manning will also be a part, like the foursome. All four of them will have some sort of, of golf event, uh, which is interesting to me because golf is one of those sports that you can play while still practicing social distancing, right? Like, you know, right. Have- right next to somebody you can keep that six feet in between you're not overlapping in a whole bunch of it's just interesting but I'm, i was reading that the other day i'm going man i would 100 watch that even after, <laughs> you're like i'm in <laughs> even after and i know i might upset some people by saying this even after the joke of a match in 2018 between tiger and phil yeah tune into this one well people you know i think people will be they'd be reaching for anything live you know like they want live sports back they want they have their teams and root for people in players and stuff. You know, it's, you think for sports, for so many people, it's a lifeline for them on a regular basis, you know, each season and cheering for things. And um, like I had tickets, I was going to be going to the NFL draft in April in Vegas. I lived there for a long time and a huge NFL fan. And I was like, man, I can't see the NFL draft. I was like super pumped for it, you know, like, and you know, you start thinking about the end of now I hear is like news about the NFL is making contingency plans, college football. I'm like, no, don't do this to me. No, <laughs> you know, like, please don't do this. But you got to be safe. You got to do the right things, you know? Yeah. Well, and a major part of sporting events to me is like part of the, is the crowd, right? Like the you feed off the yeah. crowd provides energy. And I was uh, just thinking about how you play sporting events without a crowd, right? It's, it's like, um, like a lot of the artists, musical artists, performers, mm-hmm. you know, doing live streams of concerts, right? Like we're actually, we've partnered with um, a, a Grammy nominated guy. His name's Tony Camel um, plays for, he's the front man for a, a bluegrass band called wooden wire. And he's doing a concert to benefit uh, frontline medical workers. Right. So stuff like that, that's popping up is awesome. But also on the, the, the flip side of that, it, like the concert's all about being there and having a, a shared experience with people, at least in, in my opinion, and enjoying somebody's talent. And without that, does that degrade the, the I don't want to say maybe purity of the art or purity of mm. the art a little bit? I think it may. I think but- it may. Yeah, I think so. Because I, I don't know. It's like now they're saying like, you know, have these have these uh, events with no people there. I would think as an athlete, that would be weird. It'd just be like being in practice, basically, but dressed up with all the stuff. And you're, you know, the crowd plays an important part of the intensity of any a match or a game and kind of the, the, the highs and lows. I think of like in the NBA, like when a team gets on a 20 to one run, the crowd plays a gigantic part in that. And then like, that's just be weird if some team's scoring a bunch of buckets against each other over and over again. And it's silent. Be like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a, like a weird. Right. And, and so I played uh, like baseball in college is not a marquee sport. Right. So especially yeah. in a, school nobody gave a shit like nobody cared so yeah. we anybody anywhere from like six people and parents show up to the game to thousands. <laughs> that's right <laughs> but i do remember and this is my favorite experience playing college baseball period uh, going to mississippi state have you ever seen the there's a 30 for 30 on this actually it's called thunder and lightning about will smith and yes Romero. have you seen that yes it's oh my gosh it's an incredible 30 for 30 if you haven't seen it go go, go watch it but you'll know if you since you've seen that um the fences beyond the fences, people will back mm-hmm. up 
and you can buy these trailer slots. And there's very avid Mississippi State baseball fans. So when we went and we played there, uh, there's 13 to 16,000 screaming people. They're super intense. They're super into it. Their student section is beyond the right field fence. And you can wheel coolers onto those with alcoholic beverages. So <laughs> students get a little rowdy, right? They'll heckle the shit out of the players. It was awesome. Yeah. This, uh, they would heckle our right fielder. His name was Jimmy Pickens. But this is what I loved about this, this um, sport in the stadium and the people there. Uh, when you were on the field playing against their team, you were their sworn enemy. But off the field, they were your best friend. So whenever we were playing uh, not Mississippi State, it was a tournament. So we were playing like Eastern Illinois uh, was there as well. Um, so we were playing as Eastern Illinois and they loved Jimmy, our right fielder. Like they were feeding him hot dogs, you know, giving him water in between innings. And that, uh, I mean, to me, that's why I love sports. It's so magical. And you get those, again, those hu- human interactions, those positive human interactions that you just don't, don't get anywhere else. Yeah. It's hard to replicate that. You know, it's like, it'd be funny if they're like, have these professional sporting events and they're like pipe as much music and crowd noise in there and stuff like that. Just like, Let's just, let's just fake it. Let's make it as, as real as possible. You know, like, and imagine watching that on TV, like, you're like, okay, this is strange. I think that that kind of happened with like the different talk shows at night. They tried to do them for a little bit without the audience. And it, I think a lot of people were just weirded out by it. They're like, this is strange. Like we need to stop doing this, you know? So I just feel like we're a long way from having a bunch of people in a stadium you know, eating hot dogs and stuff and wiping their hands on their pants and stuff. It kind of grosses me out, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. Exchanging money, picking their nose, wiping it up. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, people are not very like, you know, not a lot of etiquette at a lot of these things, man. You know, it's like, you ever like when you travel on an airplane, like a big pet peeve of mine in airplanes is like making sure I clean up my area really nice you know, after I've eaten stuff and make sure it looks really nice so that the next person who sits in there, it's really clean. Now they clean up and stuff, but like, I don't want the workers out to like pick up all my popcorn on the ground and stuff. When you walk past the aisles, it is like a bomb went off inside the plane of food and weird stuff all over the ground, you know? Yeah. That's uh, I got a, a little anecdote about it because I'm the same way you are and that's just how it was raised, right? It's like, yeah, after yourself, you make a mess, you clean it up, you take responsibility for your actions, right? Like that sort of thing. Uh, but when we're so college baseball, we would take a lot of road trips and there's no money in college baseball. So we would take buses, right? Like 13 hour bus trips where you got the football team that would uh, fly to Illinois from you know, <laughs> Michigan, right? Or, uh, just, you know, they, cause they had the budget to, to do that type of type of stuff. So we'd spend these 12, 13 hours on bus rides and it's a bunch of college age guys, right? So there's a whole bunch of garbage, you know, rappers, all of that everywhere. And it was always the freshman's responsibility, right? Like that was kind of our, our hate. It's like make the freshman do stuff we don't want to do. So pick up baseballs, like carry the buckets, uh, you know, all that jazz. And it would be absolutely, I remember being a freshman and cleaning it up. Disgusting, man. It was just disgusting. And part of it was knowing that somebody else was going to pick up after you, uh, which is why, you know, you just left it there because it wasn't your problem. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, we're not a very cleanly species, honestly. I mean, I, I know all this is going on, but like, I'm getting all these stories flooded back in of like all that stuff. All the same in track and field, there's definitely no money. And, you know, as athletes, we were taking those 12, 13 hour bus rides to different meets. And it was just disgusting, man. I mean, it's like really nasty. 
And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I get out into the regular world and workforce and stuff. Maybe people be cleaner. Nope, definitely not true. And airport bathrooms. Oh, my gosh. The amount of guys who don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom is putrid. It's pretty nasty. I always make sure to do it just because I am of the same mentality you are. It's like I'm going to shake hands with somebody. And I'm not going to put images in people's heads, but just imagine where, you know, those hands have been if you don't wash them. So with that being said, it's like, I just want to be courteous to other people and those around me um, and do my responsibility to wash my hands. Right. And maybe, you know what, maybe that's the good thing that'll come out of, of all of this is uh, men will start washing their hands in the bathroom. I hope so, because it's uh it's pretty disgusting, man. You know, for me, I might struggle in this new world because I'm a big hugger. I love hugging people. I give really good hugs. And I really like people to you know, like, oh man, big hug, you know, and I, people are going to, nobody's going to want me to do that anymore. They'll be like, no, 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 just elbow bumps or whatever. I'm like, I hope hugging comes back. I'm a big fan of it, you know? All right. So I got to ask, because I consider myself a good hugger as well. What, what's the secret? What's your technique? Oh man. Good question. You know, for me, like I kind of wrap myself to like one hand kind of lower and one hand over the shoulder and then I bring them in real close to me and then I hold it for like longer than a normal hug. Just a little bit. There's like a, there's an art to it, you know, just like maybe like one, one and a half seconds longer than you normally would. Cause you can't do like a weird brief hug. It just feels weird. And then if you do it too long, it's like, this is really strange. So it's like a little bit in between, but they really feel it. And then also what I like to do, as soon as I'm releasing the hug, I kind of have my hands on the person's shoulder a little bit and kind of trail off a little bit like, hey, I see you type of thing, you know? Okay. Okay. I can I can already tell that you're a pro. So oh, I'm uh, a pro. <laughs> you got to have the little bit of the squeeze, right? Like and Squeeze. And, and you're right. There is an art to it, right? Because you don't want it to be too short unless you're, you know, like dapping somebody up, right? But you don't want yeah. it long because if you do it too long it's just creepy so there's there's that fine line to walk um and it sounds like you uh you're you're the pro so uh, i've perfected this over many years peter it's uh it's an art form man you know well i would say i'm gonna struggle too because i took i take great pride in my handshake I, i still remember learning how to shake hands and um i will forever regret uh, well, we'll get to that in a, a little bit, but Cal Ripken was actually the person who taught me to shake hands and it wasn't cause what? I, yeah, it wasn't cause I met him. It wasn't cause I interacted with him. It was yeah. uh, a DVD that I would watch all the time as a kid. And it was the all century team DVD where they went position by position and essentially designated, uh, on a position by position basis, the best people to play the game of baseball over the past hundred years. And Cal Ripken was one of them at their base. And he would just absolutely crush people's hands. Like he had a very firm handshake <laughs> him in the eye, right? Like this kind of all of that. And my dad, I was watching it with my dad. He paused it and goes, son, I'm going to teach you how to shake hands. And that's how I learned. hands. <laughs> and I always wanted to tell that story to Cal Ripken and I got the opportunity to, and I chickened out. <laughs> so it was the uh it was game six of the cubs no, i'm sorry game seven of the cubs indians world series i was a senior in college going to a job interview so i'm in the chicago airport and there's this massive layover which i was super excited about because i'm like hell yeah i get to watch the game now so i go to a bar in the airport you know i got a few hours um i got a beer in front of me and i look to my right and i do kind of like a double take i'm going holy shit like that looks 
No, it's not. Wait. No. That's no, that's that's Cal, that's him. That's Cal Ripken. And he had this kind of little posse, his entourage kind of like uh, around him, shielding him. He was sitting at the bar, just drinking water, watching the game. And I was trying to just drum up the confidence to go up and talk to him. And before I could actually do that and just tell him like, hey, man, big fan. He actually taught me how to shake hands. Uh, he got up and he left. So I will forever regret that interaction. <laughs> no Cal Ripken. No, no, no story. That That's pretty, that's pretty funny. You know, <laughs> you know, what made me think of that made me think of. When uh, the movie Dodgeball, which is one of my favorite movies, and the the Vince Vaughn's character was at the airport, and then Lance Armstrong, which is weird with Austin connection here, you know, uh, was like, well, I guess you know, if everybody you know didn't do what they needed to do, nobody would you know succeed or whatever, you know. And I was like, that was weird. I don't know why that just crossed my mind, man. <laughs> I mean, it's a, a nice little celebrity airport bar interaction that that has to be what it is. Yeah, no, it, I think it just made me think of that, you know, but like, so are you like crushing people's hands when you're doing it or what's the deal? Like, Well, the same way with, you know, hugging and the, the tightness there yeah. part to it where you don't want to go in too firm, right? Because if somebody comes in with that dead fish, then you absolutely just oh, out of their hand. Uh, but mm. on the flip side, you don't want to be the guy that uh, doesn't have a firm handshake. Um, and I'm saying that just my I, I just I believe a handshake tells a lot about somebody and a firm handshake eye contact that's just the way that I was raised um is just good good manners that's again the way I was raised um so there is a little bit of an art to it where you're not crushing people's hands but you're not going dead fish either yeah i i've known people who do both and i don't like either i just <laughs> I don't want my hand to be completely ripped off. And like I had a guy, I had an employee one time who was like older gentleman and he was, I thought he was literally trying to kill me every time he would shake my hand. And like, I got to the point I, I had put up my hand in front of him. I was like, stop. I was like, I, I don't want that level of handshake. Just so you know, like I'd rather get a hug. I don't want to keep doing this like ball busting handshake. You're trying to destroy me every time, you know? And, and then if somebody had a real like limp one, I'd be like, this feels weird. I just tell people, I'm like, it feels very like slimy, you know, <laughs> like, because you're communicating information when you do that, you know, and it's like, I'm not confident or I'm like trying to intimidate you, type of thing, you know, like, let's get in the middle here, you know. Well, that's super interesting, too, because and I mean, just body cues, right? Like just actions that people take tell you so much information without even verbalizing anything at all. Right, like just, I feel like talking, right? Just verbal communication is maybe, I don't know, like 10, 20% of all the communication we're capable of. Something, something just on a very small level, maybe. Yeah. I think, you know, how you interact and how you kind of your presence, I think is really important. Like for me, like when I'm out, like, it's so funny. I feel like I'm talking about a movie about when things were, it's like 12 monkeys or something back, back in the day before the virus hit, you know, it's like, I was do I was like I like walking and and looking at people when they walk in front of me like around me and then smiling at them. But there's always a lot of people like as soon as they walk past another person, they drop their head immediately. And that says something too. You know, it's like the person who's just like, "Hey, how's it going?" And I've taught my daughter that that when we walk around and we see people, again, pr don't worry, people, I'm not out doing it right now. I got, I know. Um, but before all this physical distancing, I would say, "Hey, somebody walks by, say, hey, hello, how are you today?'" You know, 
And that always stuns people when you do that. They're like, oh, hi, you know, like you don't have to retreat because somebody's walking next to you, you know, like, and, and wants to smile at you, you know, it's, it's just smiling, just that smiling without any verbal interaction says something, you know? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the community. And I loved being in the Midwest during that because the Midwest is notorious um, for it. Right. And then juxtaposition uh, would be like a, like a New York, right. Or a, a Hong Kong yes. kind of just like they're doing their own thing, right. They're just doing their own thing. And then in the Midwest, it's just a little bit of a, a slower pace and, and a lot of your, at least where I grew up where it's just, Hey, what's going on, Darian? You know, how's it going? How are the kids? You know, like you just run into people at the grocery store and you have a full on conversation. Cause that's, you know, that's just the way things are. Um, and it's so different, man. So yeah. different. Oh Yeah. Which is also fascinating too, right? You go to different regions of the country and there's, you know, people talk differently, people live different lives. But again, at the end of the day, we're all part of the same team, right? We're all unified. It's really interesting. It is interesting. And it's funny when I lived in Las Vegas for about 15 years, Vegas is definitely a heads down place. Like we always used to joke that people will go home, put their car in the garage and then, you know, close their blinds. Nobody talks to each other in neighborhoods in Vegas. It's a very like, I'm going to keep to myself type of thing. Um, nobody's really from there. So everybody's kind of like wary, wary of each other. But like when I moved up here, you know, I'm driving my car and people are just waving to me. I don't know these people. They're just waving to me while I'm driving on the road, you know. People are walking in the middle of the street, literally in the middle of the street, just walking their dogs and stuff because there's not a lot of cars on the road. And, you know, and people will, will drive way far out of the way of somebody walking on the, like, super far, like in the other lane, just so they're not even close to the person who's walking on the side of the road type of thing. And it's just a different mentality. It's a very respectful, like, you're a human, I'm a human, I'm going to greet you, say hello, and be cordial. And after living in Vegas, again, I like Vegas, but after living there, it, it was rough for me. I was like, I'm not used to being treated like this and being so nice, you know? Like, Yeah. I mean, some, different. some people hate it, right? It's, it's just different. And uh, I think yeah. I mean, you found a, a nice little, uh, a, ni a perfect like paradise is, you know, the way I've, I've oh, yeah. where, <laughs> where, where you're at right now. Um, but that's, I mean, that's also super interesting too, because like one of the things I realized in college was at, in, when I'm in the car and I see pedestrians, I have such a different view of pedestrians. And when I am a pedestrian, I look at cars and I like, I, when I'm a pedestrian, I look at cars, I hate all the people driving. It's like, stop, let me go. I need to walk through. But then on the flip side, like I'm in the car, pedestrians, stupid pedestrians, you guys are slowing me down. Um, <laughs> just all the the perspective that I have, which, you know, it's it's really interesting when we're just put in different places where, uh, how, how we respond. The country is very different. I think that's what's in many ways is a good thing, but also it's a challenging thing because we're kind of suffering from that right now. Like we have all these States, but they all function as different countries almost within the same United States. And so our reactions to, you know, uh, isolation and physical distancing and sheltering at home and all that have been different depending on the state that you go to, you know, for that. Some states are more in line, but because we have so much different power within the states, we're just, we're just reacting to it differently. And I'm starting to see news where like, this thing's going to really start moving to the Midwest pretty hardcore here soon, as it has in some places and there's just a different mentality in different places. There's sometimes even like 
this air of invincibility and some people are like, oh, I ain't worried about it. You know, not, no big deal. And I'm like, we're just so different, but similar all at the same time, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really easy to have that air of invincibility when, you know, until it affects you. Um, exactly. And, you know, it's, it, I think, I mean, you're right. There's, all I can say is it's an absolutely unprecedented time and I have no idea where we're going to go from here, but I'm extraordinarily hopeful in, uh, in the human race and, you know, all of us. Well, I think that, you know, your news company is is doing a great thing and it's something that people need to run to, you know, to have news, get the information, you need to have it, but you also need to have a positive aspect of it too. So thank you for doing that and hope we get more people into Donut and what you're doing and uh, your version of how news is being presented, I think is really, really positive. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, people and I personally, right? Like I'm, I would like creating products for myself first and foremost, because if I'm not going to use them, who the hell else is going to? And mm-hmm. I always love having a daily reminder that there is good in the world, right? Even with everything going on. So I mean, I appreciate that compliment. Um, you guys should check us out. You can find us at the donut.co. Um, right now, our first product is a daily email newsletter. Uh, we got a whole bunch waiting in the wings over the next couple months. So stay tuned, come check us out. And, uh, yeah, that would be awesome. Well, Peter, it's been a pleasure. I mean, it's been a pleasure ever since the moment I talked to you the first time off air. And I knew I was going to really look forward to this one, especially because you're a great conversationalist. You, your mind is very open. And, um, you know, and having a news organization, it's honestly, it's it's different talking to news people and presenting that. And you're a very grounded person. And that makes it a lot easier to talk about these types of subjects with someone. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I feel like you have to be able to see both sides, right? Like step outside of who you are, who your beliefs are, right? Because your past pretty much determines how you look at life, right? You know, determines your worldview. And being able to step outside of that is, uh, I think it's a worthwhile exercise for sure. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you for your time. And we will definitely be in touch. Darian, can't wait, man. This was an absolute pleasure. I was looking forward to this for uh, like a, a month um, and love to do it again. Um, I'm about to start one. Th- I don't know if I've told you this, but um, I'm going to be launching a podcast myself just for, you know, shits and giggles over uh, over the yeah, next. Yeah. Yeah. We should definitely link up, man. That'd be awesome. I would be. Yeah. I'm happy to help out in any way. And yeah, I think you had mentioned that. But yeah, man, I think we got to have you on again. It's just good conversation. Everybody's at home. A lot of people are at home, let's say, and there's good stuff to listen to. So listen to this, you know. <laughs> hey, man, you just you say the word and I will be there. And uh, also, let's get that retreat back on the books. Um, you know, whenever I know, man, it's going to happen. I promise. <laughs> I need it, man. <laughs> Everybody needs it at this point. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. This is awesome. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.